0: It's time to take the quiz. 5 questions, 5 minutes a day, 5 days a week.
1: Take the quiz every weekday at the quiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course listen to the quiz at the quiz.fox.
2: From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade.
3: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moment to the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Uh, John Roberts is standing by over in Tel Aviv. He's keep bringing us the latest. He'll be heading home soon. He'll be on America Reports later, uh, but he's live from Israel with us. And Senator uh, Haggerty will be here. He is very upset about the the pick that President Biden has made to be the next ambassador to uh, Israel because of his track record. I'm talking about Jack Lew and what he did behind the scenes lying to Congress, lying to the Senate about what he was doing to push forward on the Iranian deal. Uh, what he was doing with their capital, trying to convert it into dollars and euros. We'll discuss that a little bit later, as well as the president's speech last night. Before we get to John Roberts, let's get to the big three.
2: Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big
4: Three. Number three. Well, you all, you all said that we were going to lose between the first vote and the second vote. You all said we were going to lose 10 to 15 votes. We stayed the same. We picked up a few. We lost a few. I think the ones we lost can come back. So, uh, look. Look. I just know that we need to get a speaker as soon as possible so we can get to work for the American people. The oddest
3: press conference in the history of odd press conferences. Jim Jordan calls one to say that essentially I'm doing the same thing I was doing, trying to be speaker. And I'm about 20 votes short. House chaos inexplicably continues. We still don't have a speaker. It is bad for the country. It is terrible for the party. We'll see what happens today or this weekend.
5: Number two,
6: see small scale attacks. Uh, are clearly concerning and dangerous, right? And we're going to, as I mentioned, we're going to do everything necessary to ensure that we're protecting our forces. Uh, and, and if and when we choose to respond, we'll do so th- at a time of our choosing.
3: Yeah, Brigadier General Pat Ryder always sounds like we woke him up in the middle of the night and he has no idea quite what's going on. America was under attack in the Middle East, Yemen, Iraq, and Syria, and some pushback in defense of Israel at home uh, in Times Square at least there was some positive and support, positive support for Israel. And one Ivy League professor stand up and speaks out against the anti-Israel and anti-Semitism that he's getting on Ivy League campuses.
7: Number one. Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy, completely annihilate it.
3: Uh, President Biden, a little of his 15-minute speech last night. He speaks, outlines reasons for supporting two wars. This is our assets and personal targeting, uh, uh, and uh, and our personnel get targeted off the coast of those three countries, where we hit, where they missed, and what was left out. Uh, Let's talk about it. So, John, I watched you last night. Thanks so much for joining us. I watched you last night, give your instant analysis. I pretty much feel the same way. The president cuffed some bases, said some things, blended in Ukraine and Israel, and didn't bring up, I think, the most vital part, the worst carnage in modern history took place. And the victims were civilians. They were seniors. The the kidnapped, the the hostages are children. And yet the president really glazed over that.
8: And and the fact that 30 Americans were killed and some 12 are still missing. Uh, Dana Perino and I thought that uh, the president could have been a lot stronger. And Dana made the point that she really wanted to like the speech. She spent all day... Saying, I really hope he says something that I can like. And she was, she was very disappointed. And she always has a very reasoned perspective on things. And she's not a bomb thrower or anything like that. She just, she used to be the press secretary. She knows how to, how to, uh, you know, read, read behind the lines. And she just found that that was completely lacking. I was very surprised that he didn't go tougher on Iran, when you think that Hamas is a fully funded subsidiary of Iran. Hezbollah is, and they're skirmishing across the border with the IDF and may open up a second front in the war. And the Houthi rebels are fully funded by Iran as well, and they're firing off cruise missiles that our destroyers, our guided missile cruisers, are are taking down. So why wasn't he stronger about Iran? I I was really puzzled by that.
3: Yeah, I was. Uh, He did bring it up, though. uh, That was my surprise. But if you think about it, John, I know he would never bring it up, but analyze it. Look at the contrasting two foreign policies. One was to put Iran in a box, was to say to Saudi Arabia, uh, we're, put, we're going to bet on you guys. Because together, uh, as, as uh, not a pariah nation, as imperfect as you guys are, one thing we have in common, we have a common enemy. And who knew that by backing Saudi Arabia it would lay the foundation for something as, uh, as transformational as the Abraham Accords. But when this administration walked in, they said the Houthi rebels are no longer on the terror watch list. And the pariah nation is Saudi Arabia, and we would like to open up talks about getting back into a nuclear deal with Iran. And then you pull out of Afghanistan. You cannot pretend that any nonpartisan analyst can't pretend that those moves didn't set us up for the chaos we have today in Ukraine, around the Middle East, and now in Israel. And now in Israel.
8: You know, you know things have been pretty stable for the previous four years before Biden took over. And, and Donald Trump had always been tagged as somebody who wanted to start a nuclear war. I and I remember him calling me when we were in Hanoi, when he was meeting with the Vietnamese uh, president. And, he, and we, I was waiting for him to arrive for a press conference. And he called me up out of the blue. And he said, John, he says, I don't understand. Everybody thinks that I want to start a war. I'm trying to prevent a war. That's what I'm trying to do. And, and we saw that the world was reasonably peaceful. I mean, there were a few conflicts here and there. But nothing like we have seen uh, since 2021, January of 2021, we had Afghanistan, which precipitated Ukraine, which has now precipitated the Samas attack on Israel, which may precipitate a wider regional war. It, 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 it's just the, the the projection of American strength is so important to keep the world in, in stasis. And and there are many critics of President Biden who believes that that has been absolutely lacking. And, uh, and Dana and I both found it lacking in last night's speech. Did he say some good things? Did he say the right things about Israel? Yes, but don't forget Israel aid, which is the most important thing right now, was completely tied to Ukraine aid, which actually has the lion's share of the money. And then there were no really tough words toward Iran. Imagine what, what Ronald Reagan would have said if he were backing Israel in a war in which Iranian proxies were were killing uh, Israelis and and killing American citizens. I I think the language would have been a little stronger.
3: So right now there was another day of rage called yesterday. I mean, would you just uh, alert me when there's not a day of rage, but there is uh, unrest in Yemen right now. They're seeing shot live shots at at the Yemeni capital. But here's Joe Biden bringing up Iran. Cut six.
7: Iran is, is supporting Russia in Ukraine, and it's supporting Hamas and other terrorist groups in the region. And we'll continue to hold them accountable, I might add.
3: And what everyone chimed in with is, when have you ever held them accountable? As Senator Tom Cotton told us this morning, uh, and we've heard this before, there's been 85 attacks on U.S. forces, forces through prox, Iranian proxies since President Biden took over. He's answered two of them. How does that make that? How does that project strength? Of course, it doesn't.
8: No, no, it doesn't. And and will the attacks on the uh, the base in Syria be answered? We have got more firepower out there than five or six countries put together in the eastern Mediterranean right now with the Ford and the Eisenhower carrier strike groups and the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit. If If, if this president wanted to knock Iran back on its heels and send a warning shot, you would think that they would probably go after whoever was launching those attacks against the base. Uh, which is right there at a very critical uh, juncture in, in in between the uh, the borders of Iraq, Syria, and and Jordan. But so far, there's been no response, and and, and I know that there was no one injured. Uh, what was damaged was was minimal. It was an empty storage shed and something else. But just the idea that Iran is really trying to mix it up here and cause so much regional instability and tension would seem to demand some sort of response.
3: So I just thought this was, and you're living it. So I'll just I'll tell you, the Wall Street Journal. Reported, we had it actually before the Wall Street Journal, but this town of Karat Shimona, and that's done without knowing any, uh, believe it or not, any Hebrew, uh, I said that, has been evacuated of 22,000. It's mm-hmm. right near the Lebanese border, and they've brought into townhouses supplied by the government. Israel's evacuating that city. I guess they have some intelligence that something heavy is coming from Hezbollah. Would you conclude anything else?
8: Uh well I was I was I spent a lot of time in Kira uh, back in two thousand and six in the last war with Hezbollah and it really was kind of ground zero for all of the Hezbollah Katusha attacks. I went there one day um and, and sat through five or six uh Katusha attacks and, and some of them were extraordinarily frightening. There was the the air raid sirens would go off and you would beeline for a shelter, and in front of the shelter entrance, there is a big concrete blast barrier so people can tuck in behind it and then run into the shelter. Uh, Katusha landed literally right in front of that barrier, so if we hadn't gotten in when we did or we poked our heads out, we probably wouldn't be here to this day, but the reason why they've, they've uh, evacuated Kirichmona is because it, that would be one of the main northern targets for Hezbollah, it's very, very vulnerable. But there are so many other towns. You go a little further up the Galilee Peninsula, beautiful little town that sits atop a hill called Metula. Or you go a little bit uh, further to the west. You've got Avivim and Yaron. Um, Stula, further to the west, uh, Zarit, all these cute little towns that have a lot of kibbutzes around them. And they are right in the center of the danger zone. But here's the thing with Hezbollah, that while there is that area in the very far north of Israel that is in imminent danger from Hezbollah if hostilities should fully break out, Hezbollah has got so many rockets now and so many precision-guided rockets that Tel Aviv, that western part of Jerusalem, could be vulnerable as well. In 2006, they had a lot of dumb rockets that fired them off. They'd hoped that they would hit the target that they were aimed at. The further south they got was Haifa, but they can go much further south. They can go all the way to the middle of Negev. If they wanted to, not that there's anything out there to hit, but that's 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 how much more advanced their missile capability is. And and that's a
3: huge concern
8: for every person here
3: in Israel. Now. So let's talk about the yesterday. We understood that they got the green light to go when they when they're ready into Gaza. We know that Gaza, a lot of uh, this administration uh, and maybe understandably so, is worried about humanitarian aid to people we told to go south. Mm-hmm. What could you tell us, John Roberts, about the Rafah Gate? I understand there's up to 200 major tractor trailers ready to bring aid in. Do you know what the holdup may be? Uh,
8: e- Egypt says that the Rafah Gate is open, so we should see those trucks beginning to go through today if they haven't already. Uh, 20 in the initial tranche, uh, but as I said on the air yesterday, I think it was, uh, they need at least 200. There are so many people who have been displaced from Gaza, and Israel wants. To help the people out. But here's the problem Israel is well aware that if they start rolling all these trucks in, uh, Hamas is likely going to steal most, if not all, of the aid. I mean, Hamas is believed to have raided the United Nations Relief and Works Agency in Gaza last week, stole a bunch of things, including a bunch of fuel. So why wouldn't they get this aid? They need it too, they control the Gaza Strip. It, making sure that this aid goes where it's supposed to go
3: is is exceedingly difficult. I want you to hear what Mike Pompeo said about this exact thing cut 18.
2: They're delivering this to Hamas. That will be the the recipient. They will hand over this assistance right. to Hamas, the governing the governing authority in the Gaza Strip. Uh, they're not even designated terrorists by the agency that'll deliver to them. The UN will move this stuff, and the UN doesn't consider Hamas a terrorist. They consider them a government in good standing. No, this isn't decent. This will this will not go. Uh, to feed and and take care of the innocent civilians in Gaza. This will go to the terrorists, just like the $60 billion that has been given to the Iranian regime in just two and a half years by this administration. It didn't go to make life better for young women who just wanted to live their lives in Iran. It went to foment and aid the very terror that the world is suffering today.
3: Right. Uh, It's been enough aid, MREs and blankets. But the other thing would bother me is we might be giving cash. Why would why would we ever dream of doing that?
8: That's above my pay grade, Brian. Okay, I just. But but, but, but again, I'll just I'll just point to this idea that Hamas controls Gaza. Hamas controls every single thing that goes on in Gaza, including aid. And and for the White House to say we have an agreement or an understanding with Hamas, I mean, I got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. It, it, it just, I, I don't know how you ensure that that aid doesn't go right to the wrong people.
3: Uh, and lastly, I uh, well, used to work at CBS, uh, famously your heir apparent to Dan Rather for a while. Uh, you, <laughs> Why are we bringing that up, Brian? <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah, uh, we're lucky to have you. Uh, but CBS, uh, CBS News covering the hospital bombing. Listen to this. You know, uh, just for just to review it, everyone, it wasn't uh, a errant rocket from Israel. This was Islamic Jihad picked up and proven from intercepts to video that they shot their own hospital, but didn't even hit the hospital, didn't knock out 400 to 500. It was between 100 and 200, maybe less, and the hospital still stands. But listen to how CBS covered it and understand this this just rippled through the Middle East. Cut 27.
2: (laughs) Hundreds of people have been killed in the blast. There are so many dead, they're running out of body bags. There were young children whose legs were blown off, this man says. I just can't unsee it. The explosion and its deadly aftermath has triggered a fury across the Middle East not seen in years. In Beirut, thousands demonstrated outside the U.S. embassy while President Biden was in neighboring Israel where he said the Israeli military was not to blame. But from the streets of Tehran to even war-torn Yemen, few here believe the president and say Israel is squarely responsible for the explosion as well as the widespread misery unfolding in Gaza.
3: Journalistically, just your your opinion, John Roberts, is that the way you tell that story? Well,
8: I mean, he didn't say that Israel was responsible. I, I listened to it very carefully, and I I have to say that while it was a very pointed report, it wasn't necessarily unbalanced um, because he he rightly pointed out that the Arab world believes that Israel is responsible. Remember when President Biden said. I saw evidence that Israel was not responsible for this. But we're going to have a difficult time, but you know or what it said something about but other, other people are going to be more difficult to convince. Some something along those lines. And and that's that's true because I went in, I went into the old city, into the Muslim and the Christian quarters, talked to some Palestinians who were shop owners there. And one fellow that I talked to, um he absolutely believed and this was after The IDF had presented the information to the contrary. He absolutely believed that that was an Israeli bomb that uh, created that explosion. So I'm I'm not going to fault CBS for that report. I I thought that while it was very pointed and maybe leaning toward the the Hamas argument, they never said that Israel was responsible. Contrast that, though, with what the collective global media did in the immediate mm. aftermath of that explosion where they basically took the Hamas propaganda gotcha. line and they blared headlines around the world. That,
3: John, can't thank you enough from Tel Aviv. Great analysis, great reporting.
9: Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy,
7: and me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy,
8: as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America.
2: Download from The Kitchen Table, The Duffy's, at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show.
10: Here's what I think I would have done. This speech, as Martha, you pointed out, was largely written about Ukraine. That is a good speech for him to give. I think what I would have done tonight in an Oval Office address is to say, I'm here to talk to you about the atrocities and the terrorist attacks. We are in a fight between civilization and barbarism. And it's not just happening in Israel. It's happening in these parts of the world. And point those out.
3: And that's Dana Perino gave a little bit long dissertation of it. And she opened up by saying, you'll hear this later on in the hour. I wanted to like this speech. Brid Hume loved it. And that's great. And he's he's a, uh, he's got more experience than anyone. His insight is invaluable. But, and Harold Ford liked it. Uh, you have, you're going to hear from General Kellogg next. And you're also going to get, it, you got uh, Dana's perspective and others. Uh, to me, it was delivered better than I thought he could. Look how exhausted he was on that plane. And even when he was meeting with Benjamin Netanyahu, he was just barely enunciating and he gave the speech, and he stuck to the prompter, Uh, he mixed in Ukraine. And the word is that he had the Ukraine speech written before the Israeli attacks, and he wove wove in Israel. I'm one of the few people that you'll hear from on radio that thinks uh, Ukraine is 100% in America's interests. I 100% want it funded intelligently. I I want everybody to audit and stay on top of it and order the right stuff, absolutely. I don't want to pay anyone's pensions, I get it. But in the big picture, we need to be in Ukraine. I don't think you make that a major part of the speech last night.
2: A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade.
11: I think it was a mess tonight. Here's why. That war in Ukraine has been going on for 550 days. And he hasn't addressed it until tonight. It's been a long war second piece is we're looking at right now what I think is the largest potential fight we have in the Middle East with Iran. And, and you're looking at a state that we're trying to normalize relations with. We're trying to give them more money. It's a huge mistake. We're giving money to the Palestinian authorities that we cut out. And we've moved two carrier strike groups into the Eastern Med. We've got a, a lot of other forces moving there because this may break hard. And if it breaks hard, it's because Hezbollah, which is an Iranian proxy, is going to get involved
3: he well, just killed me yesterday as the president started his speech and they know exactly when the speech is about to start 8 p.m. eastern time they got rocketed uh, our ship got rocketed uh, rockets were sending towards our ship in uh, off the coast of Yemen then they hit our syrian base and they hit our uh, base in Iraq right and they hit they blew up a storage shed but they they missed they got it doesn't matter i mean it matters i'm glad no one died somebody did die of a heart attack in syria through all the mayhem but why are, we, why are we allowing ourselves to be victims? I'm glad we have some sort of missile defense now, but we are vastly outnumbered just to have a presence there, especially in Syria. Now, in, in Iraq, I'm comfortable with the Iraqi government somewhat, but I'm not comfortable with the presence of Iran in the area. And that's who's the one who put the militias in, act like Iraqis, and they go after our guys. You've got to hit back, and you've got to hit back hard. Remember, mother of all bombs dropped by President Trump? When they got some terror activity and they targeted one of our bases, that was in Afghanistan. Of course, the blowing up of these now we uh, of what we now know as Russian mercenaries uh, over in uh, Syria killed 200 of them. Not a word. And then we find out that uh, ISIS is in the area working with the Kurds. We basically wiped out ISIS, killed uh, al-Baghdadi, and then you kill Soleimani. All this sends a message. Oh, yeah, we're for real. I heard you did that. You're dead. I wish we could live in a world that was more mature than that. But we're not fighting with France and England. We're fighting with people who are uh, brutal terrorists. And as I just talked to Tim Kennedy, who's a former uh, special operator, mixed martial arts guy, now on the ground again with Save Our Our Allies, trying to get people out of Israel, he said, you know, we haven't really won a definitive war since World War II. That's when we didn't worry about PR and casualties. But we fight a very humane war right now, and we do not want to get down to their level. The question is, can you win if you don't? And not doing anything is not even not getting down to their level. That's not responding to a legitimate attack just because it's a so-called proxy. We know exactly where it leads to. We could pull up the intercepts in a matter of moments. Instead, we get this from Brigadier General Pat Ryder. And by the way, try to stay awake during it. Cut 21.
6: See, small-scale attacks uh, are clearly concerning and dangerous, right? And we're going to, as I mentioned, we're going to do everything necessary to ensure that we're protecting our forces. Uh, and, and if and when we choose to respond, we'll do so at a time of our choosing. Um, but if you step back and look again at what our broader strategic aim here, which is to deter, deter a broader regional conflict, which is why you see us putting additional forces into the theater.
3: But how can you avoid an additional conflict an expanding war environment if you never act in your defense? What have you done as a brushback pitch? Block a missile from blowing up your ship? To me, that's not good enough. Is that why we give $800 billion to our military, just to be there and and be a target? Meanwhile, I don't have to tell you what's going on in our streets, in our schools, with so many people deciding that the Palestinians are the victims, despite 2,000-plus dead Israelis, uh, only 300 military, the rest civilians, at least 200 being held hostage. But Israel's the bad guy, and we're seeing these anti-Semitic demonstrations, speeches, especially here in New York. And this guy, Shah Davide, I heard all about it at an event. I was at this Al Smith dinner last night in Manhattan. And I was hearing about Did You hear about this professor, this assistant professor in Columbia, what he said. And what he basically stood up and did a mini press conference. that looks extemporaneous, something he just felt. And went out and just blasted not only Columbia, but Harvard, Yale, and all these other institutions, the University of Pennsylvania, that are letting their students speak out and represent them in their anti-Semitic, anti-Israel rants. Listen to the assistant Columbia uh, professor, school professor, cut 24.
12: And I want you to know, we cannot protect your children from pro-terror student organizations because the president of Columbia University will not speak out against pro-terror student organizations. They were celebrating The rape of teenage girls in a music festival in the name
3: of resistance. Isn't it insane that he has to speak like that? Now, look, when you are, I don't really know academic advancement at the college level, but if you're an assistant Columbia Business School professor, you're expendable. My sense looking at him, he's probably 38. He's got a young family. He said, I would never send my kids to this school. I don't know if he's going to be there today. So we reached out to him, and uh, I knew somebody that knows him well, and he said he's getting so many death threats. His security is definitely in danger. His job security is gone. He's going to keep a lower profile today. But I give him so much credit for doing it. Uh, Also, yesterday, I felt a little bit better when I saw a rally in Times Square led by people that were there for the hostages to get them out, get them out alive, and warn them they better not be touched. This is more the American way, I hope. I know we've got freedom of speech, and you could march with Black Lives Matter in the middle of a pandemic and get saluted. You can come out against Israel and not get arrested. But I also think there's a logic to what the American people want and do and what's in our best interest. I didn't think supporting Israel was even debatable, especially after their attacked. Chuck Schumer, cut 23.
12: In every generation, they have risen to afflict us. And the evil, vicious, vile Hamas has done it now. But we know, in every generation, we fight back until we win.
3: So Chuck Schumer went over to Israel. What he was doing in China before is interesting. I talked to him last night, and he was anxious to talk to me. I, I, I go to the Al Smith dinner, sit in the dais. Because of these really important people, uh, Democrats and Republicans, also talked to Mayor Adams. Great conversation. He says he's coming on. Um, So I'm going to follow up on that and see if I – I really look like he was sincere, too. So – he is firmly in Israel's court. He is definitely disturbed about some of these protests. He understands what carnage is and what side we should be on. You're not talking about two-state solution and Hamas. They have no interest in a two-state solution. You're channeling 1997 Yasser Arafat. Those days are the good old days, as bad as they were compared to now. They were, he was a somewhat secular leader of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. The reason why Clinton and Carter and others were dealing with them, because they knew who the Palestinians were, they knew who the Israelis were, they knew who the neighbors who had a problem with them were. Now, Egypt doesn't have a problem, Jordan doesn't have a problem, Lebanon doesn't have a problem. It's Hezbollah in Lebanon, it's the Gaza Strip with Hamas, uh, Egypt's got Muslim Brotherhood, so it's all these terror organizations within these countries, and the Palestinians aren't legitimate partners because they are represented by a terror organization who doesn't want to compromise they want to eliminate. That's the issue. But now you got Israel going, 600,000 in uniform. The the fight is on. Brian Kilmeade show, when we come back, what does that fight look like? Will an invasion happen during this show? The green light's been given. We're going to have with us when we come back, we're going to be joined by Senator Bill Haggerty of Tennessee. Don't move.
2: It's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade.
6: We cannot say for certain what these missiles and drones were targeting, but they were launched from Yemen heading north along the Red Sea, potentially towards targets in Israel.
3: Yeah. They were aiming towards us too, uh, and that's exactly the case. They're aiming towards us, rocketed by Iranian surrogates. It's believed in Iraq, Syria, as well as our ship off the coast of Yemen. Just when the president goes to speak, a series of attacks, please tell me that he's going to respond, Senator Bill Haggerty. I know you have a lot on your plate. You're supposed to have an ambassador to evidently confirm, an ambassador, uh, Jack Lew to Israel, as well as a $100 billion aid package to analyze. Senator, welcome. Your thoughts about these three attacks yesterday?
13: Well, I I think it's just uh, incredible, but not surprising that the Biden administration will not name who's at fault. They say, oh, they weren't going our direction. They just happened to be in the air in the vicinity of our destroyer. Uh, You know, it's very clear that the Iranian regime is behind all of this. They've got their proxies agitating at every point, whether it's, you know, whether it's coming after our embassies in the Middle East. Uh, You know, we've got now a travel alert out for Americans all over the world. Um, We're at heightened danger. The reason is, Iran's behind all of this. And why is Iran able to do this, Brian? The reason for that, and you and I've talked about this before, is because the Biden administration has looked the other way. They have not enforced sanctions on Iran. And now the numbers are estimated to be as high as 80 to $90 billion of illicit oil sales that Iran's been able to achieve since 2021 when Joe Biden came in. That's on top of the $10 billion that, uh, that we authorized, that the Biden administration authorized Iraq to pay Iran, and that's before you ever get to the $6 billion that has been the focus in the media right now. So we have allowed all this fund flow to come back to Iran. Under the Trump administration, we cut it off to a trickle. It was widely publicized that Hamas and Hezbollah were going broke under President Trump. Biden comes into office. What happens in 2021? The 11 day war coming out of Gaza into Israel. And now we have this. And now we've got Iranian proxies all over the region, uh, putting pressure on America and attacking Israel.
3: Yeah, we do. We do know, too, the president spoke for 15 minutes last night. Here's a little about uh, what he said. Cut five.
7: Yesterday in discussions with the leaders of Israel and Egypt, I secured an agreement for the first shipment of humanitarian assistance from the United Nations to Palestinian civilians in Gaza, if Hamas does not divert or steal this shipment, these shipments, we're going to provide an opening for sustained delivery of life-saving humanitarian assistance for the Palestinians.
3: So he's very focused on humanitarian. It's, it's admirable to a degree, but I wish we TALK more about what happened to the victims, how, who's missing. What about the 29 Americans that were killed and the 11 that are being held against their will? I thought there was a missed opportunity to really focus on the magnitude of the events on October 7th. What about you?
13: No, I I certainly agree. And what's happened here is that Joe Biden has caught himself. I mean, you've got the arsonist there um, who who actually allowed all of this to happen. You know this. Joe Biden put in place a, a, a gentleman named Robert Malley who is Hamas, you know, a Hamas sympathizer that became our special envoy to Iran. Robert Malley, I'm certain, was behind the way, you know, not not enforcing sanctions here in America. There's an interagency process that takes place. Malley would have been the person that would have stopped the Treasury Department from their terrorism finance job and allowed these funds to flow into Iran. Malley is now... Lost his security clearances. He's been suspended from the State Department. He's under federal investigation. This is the person that Joe Biden put in charge of the relationship with Iran to negotiate with them, and this is the reason that Iran has become enriched and empowered them now to come after us in the way that they have. Joe Biden's fingerprints are all over this, and this is why he's having such a conflicted, you know, such a conflicted time trying to describe what's happening
3: here. Yeah, Tennessee Senator Bill Haggerty joining us. His last gig was ambassador of Japan uh, to Japan. Uh, in a region that's uh, is really in peril right now because of the rise of China, and China actually is struggling economically, which could make them more dangerous because they have not slowed down militarily. Before we expand this, let's let's talk about what was happening. This guy Malley, who grew up. Uh, sympathetic to Palestinians who grew up knowing Yasser Arafat so well, they say he was basically his godfather, was picked by Barack Obama to help with the negotiations and carried over to Joe Biden. Now he's teaching at Princeton. He says, I have no idea why they're taking my security clearance. I have a hunch. But for Jack Lew, with your banking, I know you you weren't doing it then, but now uh, you are part of your um, – you are one of your committees is uh, banking. banking. Yeah. yeah, the Senate Banking yeah. Committee. Jack Lew was Treasury. What was Jack Lewing as Treasury with our currency in order to help Iran while not telling the truth to the Senate?
13: Well, there's been a report on this. Uh, Rob Portman put the report out that um, basically disclosed the fact. That Jack Lew lied to the United States Senate, and he actually utilized Treasury tools to enable Iran to convert their currency, to get hard currency. Uh, It violated uh, all of the agreements. It violated what he told the United States Senate, and Jack Lew was responsible for blocking terrorism finance and, in fact, became an enabler. Of terrorism finance and his role as Secretary of Treasury, I think it's a complete insult to put someone like that. Lou may be competent in a number of areas, but to make him the nominee for U.S. ambassador to Israel when he had such a such an incredibly important role in enriching Iran, I think is is just uh, just beyond the
3: pale. Well, I, to me, to put him forward, the worst is Israel can't trust him. You know how uh, how. Uh... How aggressively Benjamin Netanyahu was against this deal came and spoke to the yeah. Congress. The Democrats sat it out. The President Obama wouldn't meet with him. And now one of the guys who constructed it and tried to and tried to circumvent it, uh, the will of the of the Senate in order to finance it, is going to be the U.S. Ambassador. This has got to be a tough moment for him. I know he's got a lot on his plate, but this is not the person he wants to see in his uh, in his Capitol
13: absolutely not and 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 lou was the person that was going around telling america that you know iran would be subject to very intrusive sanctions immediate sanctions no notice i'm sorry not sanctions but invest you know in, in investigations of the no notice nuclear right program yet. that they've got there and um you know that's that is absolutely untrue uh you know iran did not allow uh, investigations of the nuclear program we found out after a very brave and daring raid by israelis uh, we found out that they never stopped their program so the whole Iran deal was a hoax. Uh, what it did was enrich Iran, put them in a better position to do more damage to us. You think about the pallets of cash that Jack Lew was behind shipping over to Iran. And it, it, you know, We finally got those burnt off during President Trump under the maximum pressure campaign. As you mentioned, I was U.S. ambassador to Japan. My job was to get the Japanese to stop buying Iranian crude. They agreed to it. We took the funds flow down to a trickle, and we did not have this problem in Israel. Hamas comes roaring back in 2021 when Joe Biden comes in and with its guy, Rob Malley, is back at the helm. Uh, now they're getting funding from Iran. They're back in business and they launched the 11-day war. And now they've murdered over 1,300 people in this most recent uh,
3: act of violence. Senator Hagerty, let me bring you over to what was happening. Well, we're focused on the Middle East, and I understand it. We have three aircraft carriers there and two aircraft carriers there now. The Eisenhower and the Ford mm-hmm. and sending over the support vessels. We're taking our eye once again, just like 10 years ago and 12 years ago, again, out of the Pacific and focusing at the Middle East to the glee, uh, to the glee of China. They had a Belt and Road summit in China. Now, Belt and Road program, by almost all reports, has been a failure. It cost a ton of money. They take out loans. People, uh, these developing countries can't afford and build projects that are often unsatisfactory. And they didn't turn over back to China. Where's the Belt and Road program at, and why did they get so many nations showing up to be a part of it?
13: Well, Brian, it, it may be an economic failure. In fact, in every case, I think it is an economic failure. They overload these small countries with debt. They put in infrastructure that they don't need. The quality is questionable. But it may not be a strategic failure from China's standpoint. By that, I mean look at the project they did near Colombo in Sri Lanka. They built a second deep water port that wasn't economically viable, but now – they have a deep water port. The CCP has a deep water port along one of the busiest sea lanes in the world. They'd already foreclosed on it before they even finished the job. They never moved Chinese workers out. They operate under Chinese law there in Sri Lanka. I mean, I think there's a very strategic rationale for that, even though it wasn't economically viable. And that's the approach that China has taken throughout the region. Uh, we've got to push back on this at every turn. And the fact is that they're bringing these small countries in who are desperate for help while the United States is ignoring these countries, we're ignoring the opportunity to work with them. Uh, we are spending you know, our time talking about the climate, humanitarian issues. Nobody's against that, Brian, but that's not what puts food on the plate for people that are at the very bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Instead, right. our State Department is talking about stuff that is irrelevant to them at this point, And China sees this. They're taking advantage of it.
3: Senator Bill Haggerty, thanks so much. Appreciate it. And thanks so very much Always for bringing great. MLS soccer to Tennessee. <laughs> Big <laughs> success. Right. Back in a moment.
2: top Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade.
3: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. I come to you from 40th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, where I'm happy to say about four blocks away, there was a pro-Israeli uh, released the hostages rally, which was widely attended, featuring Senator uh, Chuck Schumer. And others, and I thought it was great. And they had some other celebrity speakers come out and people rallying for Israel. I feel a little bit better about this city and this country, but there's so much anti-American sentiment, anti-Israeli sentiment. It has caught me totally by surprise. Today is a day of rage, by the way. I know, when is it not a day of rage in the Middle East? And there's a huge turnout in Yemen. I guess everyone's off Friday. Uh, This hour, we're going to be joined by Howie Kurtz. He's standing by. And Josh Rogan at the bottom of the hour from the Washington Post. While everybody's focused on the Middle East, and we should be, he noticed and wrote about what's happening with China and the Belt and Road program and Russia. So let's get to the big three.
2: Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's
4: Big Three. Number three. Well, you all, you all said that we were going to lose between the first vote and the second vote. You all said we were going to lose 10 to 15 votes. We stayed the same. We picked up a few. We lost a few. I think the ones we lost can come back. So uh, look. Look. I just know that we need to get a speaker as soon as possible so we can get to work for the American people.
3: Right. We have the same objective. But Jim Jordan, I don't get your strategy. You have a press conference at eight o'clock a.m. You're going to have a vote in the 10 o'clock hour. And there's no sign that you've gotten anybody, anybody one closer to 217. I know this. The party's been damaged and the country's being hurt. Number two,
6: see small scale attacks. Uh, are clearly concerning and dangerous, right? And we're going to, as I mentioned, we're going to do everything necessary to ensure that we're protecting our forces. Uh, and and if and when we choose to respond, we'll do so th- at a time of our choosing.
3: I, I choose now. Uh, you were attacked three times yesterday, Yemen, Iraq, and Syria, and some pushback in defense of Israel at home. In Times Square, as I mentioned, some positive things. And at an Ivy League campus, an associate professor spoke out, and you'll hear from him.
5: Number one.
7: Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy, completely annihilate it.
3: President Biden, 15-minute speech of the Oval Office yesterday, speaks and outlines reasons for supporting two wars. This is our uh, as our assets and our personnel are targeted in three separate locations in the Middle East. Well, let's bring in uh, Howie Kurtz, uh, host of Media Buzz this weekend. You'll hear him. You'll see him. Howie, welcome back. Thanks, Brian. Now, right, first off, the president's speech, what do you think?
14: Um, I thought it was a surprisingly good speech just because Joe Biden is not a good orator. But clearly, uh, both of these wars, Ukraine and Israel, uh, he feels very passionate about. I think it may be a tough sell to get $70 billion through a dysfunctional Congress, at least on the House side. But... Um, You know, he's become a war president. Of course, no U.S. troops directly involved, and that's a good thing. But uh, I think he'll be judged, certainly on the economy and the border and all the things that have made him a pretty unpopular president, even among Democrats, who are also worried about his age. But uh, I think in this instance, he has stepped up. Uh, Both uh, these countries, he says, face annihilation and that the U.S. is the essential nation. And I thought that was a good way of putting it.
3: He did mention Iran, and this was the moment. Cut six.
7: Iran is is supporting Russia in Ukraine, and it's supporting Hamas and other terrorist groups in the region, and we'll continue to hold them accountable. I might add.
3: So he brought it up, but he almost soft played their role. They are the they are the ones controlling the all the figures here, and those were the those are the ones assumed to be the proxies, using the proxies to attack us in three separate locations yesterday. Do you think that his handling of Iran really laid the groundwork for this type of unrest since he took office two and a half years ago?
14: Uh, I don't want to go that far, but I will say that I was disappointed when he gave the speech in Tel Aviv that he didn't mention Iran at all, at least in this uh, Oval Office speech he did, because clearly Hamas, Hezbollah, and other terror groups around the world, Iran is – uh, fueling them, training them, financing them, and Biden was kind of ambiguous. He'll face the consequences. Well, what consequences? What is the U.S. going to do? I'm not saying he has to lay out everything uh, that he has up his sleeve, but uh, we should be talking about Iran. And to the extent it uh, was a mistake for the Biden administration to try to 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 do the six billion dollars with the prisoner swap, that has to be part of the conversation.
3: Uh, okay, I want you to hear. So, uh, Britt Hume loved the speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dana Perino followed him with this. Cut nine.
10: I prepared all day to love this speech. I prepared to want to stand up and cheer. And at times I felt like we were reading a speech whose pages had been mixed up out of order. I thought that he didn't spend enough time talking about the atrocities of October 7th. Uh, he, he does obviously have a, br- a definite deep understanding of the pain and he is definitely against anti-Semitism, both abroad and at home. But he he rushed that part of the speech so much. And the next thing I know, we're talking about Ukraine and they were kind of back to Israel. But then wait, wait, are you going to bring it up Taiwan as well? I thought there was going to be something on the southern border. I did not think it was as strong as it could have been. And I wanted it to be strong.
3: And he said, I'm really upset. I have to disagree with Brit Youm. She went on to say, you know, the border is for, they won $14 billion for the border. But he didn't even mention the border at all. Uh, and the, the Ukraine speech—the theory was—and it was the Ukraine. It was written for Ukraine, and then after the October seventh attacks, he kind of wove in both. Do you think it was right to weave in both requests?
14: Um, yeah, because that's why he—that's he, how he's thinks he's going to sell the Ukraine aid, which has strong elements in the Republican Party who think that uh, we have given enough to Ukraine. But, of course, uh, if Putin succeeds in that horrible invasion, and there are certain similarities in terms of the brutal uh, atrocities and tactics, um, that would be a major setback for the West, and who knows what Putin would try to do next. Look, the speech may have been not the best organized, uh, but at the same time, I care about the substance. And the substance was... The United States of America is the only country uh, that can keep both of these uh, allies, Ukraine and Israel, from being overrun, from being wiped off the map. And so I think that was the main takeaway. I thought he did talk about atrocities at the top. He talked about it in more detail uh, in Israel. But, you know, you only get 10 or 15 minutes from the network, so there was a lot to cram
3: in. Right. I just love the the 29 Americans that died, the 11 to 15 that are missing. I also would think that if you really want to do analysis of it, and I'm sure it's not going to be in a speech – we don't leave Afghanistan the way we do, if we don't reapproach Iran the way we chose to do, if we don't make uh, Saudi, the first statements about Saudi Arabia a pariah nation, then ask them to get involved in the Abraham Accords again and not allow anyone in your administration to use those words, we might not be in this place right now. But as, Dan, as I talk to people with great contacts in Israel, as you do, one of which is Dan Senor was telling me that he's heartened by some of the newscasts that this was a divided Israel prior to the attacks. And this Arab-Israeli news anchor, who is very well respected, might be the most popular anchor in the country, said this about where the country is right now as we wait hours, days, minutes from a, a ground attack into Gaza. Cut 25.
1: I'm sorry that I'm using my microphone to send a message to the world. As a journalist, this is my only weapon. Since Saturday morning, the state of Israel is under attack. Our beloved country is under attack. We are under an attack of a brutal, barbaric, inhumane terror organization. Not an entity, not a government, not a leadership, but a terror organization. And we, the citizens of the state of Israel, all of us, left and right, secular and religious. Jews, Christians, Druze, Muslims, minorities, and immigrants from all over the world stand united together in this fight.
3: So she's evidently the one of the most popular, if not the most popular anchor there, and she's all in. They said that was a big point for this, for Israel, because their Arab population is very valuable.
14: Yeah, look, B.B. Netanyahu was in deep political trouble with massive demonstrations against him until this war happened. I don't want to reduce it to politics. But, of course, he's going to eventually have to answer for why Israel was so unprepared for the Hamas invasion. But that reminds me of one other quick point on the Biden speech, which is he also uh, spent uh, a couple of – a few paragraphs on – The Palestinians and how they – civilians shouldn't be made to suffer, and his refrain that Hamas does not represent the Palestinians. So there was so much balancing going on, and the one thing that he came away from the trip – with was to allow humanitarian aid into Israel for ordinary Palestinians as long as it's not stolen by Hamas. But it still hasn't happened. Israel and Egypt are still squabbling over this while the uh, crisis there gets worse by the day. So his one accomplishment, uh, I I hope it's just delayed, but it's certainly at this point marred because nothing has happened.
3: A couple of things, Howie, on that. Humanitarian aid to innocent civilians, who's against that? But how you do it and just say, I'm going to get aid in there, is so naive to think I'm going to give money and aid into Gaza Strip knowing Hamas is in control and they got the guns. So to me, you have to first get worried about our people. You get aid in there, you get a process. But to me, one of the big disasters of that trip was allowing Egypt and Jordan to blow him off. They allowed the foreign minister of the UK to go in and visit, but they blew him off for an incident that was not Israel's fault. And he said the other team, it wasn't the, it looks like it was the other team. That, to me, is not the, this is the way we're doing it, we're the superpower, we got your back, and if you're going to strike us in Iraq and uh, in, off the coast of Yemen and in, in uh, Syria, we're going to hit you right away. That is not just a show of muscle, that's an actual use of muscle. I think there's a huge problem with a lot of this messaging in a world that only understands black and white.
14: Right. But I think it became politically impossible for the Arab leaders to meet with Biden when the hospital explosion happened. And I blame a lot of this on the media because uh, so many New York Times, you know, Israeli airstrike kills, hundreds, Palestinians say it was complete and total bulls, Hamas propaganda. We've since confirmed that through independent reporting, U.S. intelligence, Israeli intelligence. And yet there are still some news organizations that say, well, both sides are blaming each other. That's complete and total crap, Brian. This was— uh, errant islamic jihad rocket that happened to fall in the courtyard of that hospital and i think the press initially not all of it but much of it went along with the hamas propaganda spin
3: absolutely and the thing is too you're in the air for seven hours at that time you get king abdullah who basically is uh he's like an american he's, yeah. he knows all the celebrities here all the time yeah he's a great guy. Uh, and understands this country. Hey, listen, King Abdullah, you're going to make me look terrible. I'm flying to Israel in the middle of a war zone. Mm -hmm. Now you're blowing me off. Hey, Al-Sisi, I write you billion dollar checks every six weeks. You know that they didn't do this anyway. You know this was perpetrated on them anyway. You know who Hamas is. That's why you don't want him in. You cannot blow me off like this and just use some of that leverage or call him out. I just thought, well, we've got to worry about your population. Well, you also have to worry about your number one Uh, Your number one ally in the region should be us, I thought. So that, to me, was somewhat of a disaster. And I just think what happens from here on in, because you know, Howie, you've been through this so many times, Israel will make a mistake. Hamas will use children to block them in the middle of their headquarters, and innocent people will die. And that doesn't mean that Israel is the bad guy, because they they never intend to hurt a civilian. For Hamas, they target them. That's a it, fundamental difference.
14: Hamas only targets them. Hamas then releases hostage videos and releases footage yes. of, uh, you know, they brag about it. There's, and there's celebrations, including from some on the American left, which I find just absolutely positively pathetic. And, um, yeah, of course, there will be inevitable civilian casualties. But Israel at least sends warnings. We're going to hit this building. Everybody evacuate. Hamas does the opposite.
3: Yeah, uh, Howie, the other big story is happening right now, and they're going to do it again. Jim Jordan's going to go for the third round. There is no indication he's picked up any votes. He had a press conference. I'm a big Jim Jordan fan. I think he's a great guy. I've known him before. I know wrestlers that wrestled against him. So I'm not saying anything negative about him, but why call a press conference and not say anything, take some questions and not say anything, and then go back to vote, and there's no indication that he's picked up any votes. He's at 199 right now. He needs 217 can you, you know, Washington, you're in Washington. Can yeah. you give me an idea of what's about to happen?
14: No, uh, yeah, he's going to lose this vote, and I don't see how that helps him. I'm completely puzzled by this strategy. I do think that some of the hardball tactics that Jordan allies have employed, uh, texting you know, the wives of members who are nuts. opposed to his number, it's just nuts, and it's this caused a backlash. Um, I do think the House needs a speaker. That's Jordan's main case now. Is you may not love me, but this can't go on forever. And Meanwhile, we're talking about Ukraine. We're talking about Israel. The House can't do squat and doesn't even want to give the interim speaker any temporary powers. That got shot down pretty quickly. So I don't see any end in sight. And it's obviously badly damaged the Republican brand. You know, the voters give them a majority in the House and they can't even pick a leader.
3: So uh, Howie Kurtz, your your show will probably be on while this thing is unfolding. They're going to do this through the weekend. But how bad do those eight look right now? I mean, I know this
14: is Kevin McCarthy calls them.
3: Yeah. I mean, I mean, what was Kevin McCarthy doing? Well, you don't agree with everything he's doing. Well, you know, exactly his approach is. I mean, I couldn't believe it at the time. But as Mike Waltz says, he's a military guy. You don't blow up the bridge unless you have another bridge to go over. They blew up the bridge and had no idea what they were doing. How bad do they look?
14: They look awful. They look horrible. They look like they can't lead. They look like a bunch of squabbling fourth graders. And at the same time, I mean, look, Kevin McCarthy won 200. Yes, Out of 218 votes. No, excuse me. Uh, You know, he lost only eight votes. And yet that was enough because of the concessions he made to become speaker to knock him out of that job. But, yeah, where was the plan B? Scalise couldn't get it done. Jordan doesn't look like he can get it done. And so uh, they're leaderless. It's uh, an awful face to show to the American public, particularly when we're now enmeshed in two
3: wars. And I'll bring this up. I I know that Jim Jordan was firmly in Kevin McCarthy's court. And even though Steve Scalise and Kevin McCarthy weren't uh, necessarily in the greatest terms, Mm -hmm. Steve Scalise did not say, I want to be speaker. That was not on his agenda. He's dealing with cancer, uh, uh, cancer treatment. So they didn't want this. Now people are, are kind of looking at him as the bad guys. But Jordan's like, okay, if I'm going to be speaker, I'm going to go win. He's got that winning attitude. He went overboard clearly. So now he looks bad. Scalise looks weak. Ken McCarthy's exasperated. And Matt Gates says, I don't care. I'm going to get reelected anyway.
8: <laughs> and maybe
14: run for governor in Florida. Uh, look, I don't understand why they can't solve this, why they can't come up with some kind of consensus candidate who hasn't uh, ticked everybody off uh, to be the next Speaker of the House. It just makes them look <laughs> weak, confused. And it, I, it might be one thing it would be kind of like Beltway Inside Baseball if it was happening in a relatively calm period, but right. a time when you know just about everybody agrees we've got to get aid to Israel, there's some agreement, it's but it's disputed, we've got to get aid Ukraine. And 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 this
3: is a clown show. Howie Curse. Watch him at 11 o'clock. Media Buzz and get, check out his podcast. Howie, thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. You got it. When we come back, I'll take your calls. And then we have a great guest at the bottom of the hour. It'll be Josh Rogan, Washington Post. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here.
2: If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade.
3: All right, we got a couple of minutes here. Just a quick note: uh, Teddy and Booker T come out on Tuesday. I know we're not focused on history. We're talking about now, although knowing history right now will put us all in perspective. If you want to, um, if you want to get it, pre-order. Just go to BrianKilmeade.com. I could also pre-sign it, especially if holidays coming up. The other thing to keep in mind too: I got these live events where I talk about all the books at once. Best of all, I get a chance to meet you in person. And I'm going to be in Red Bank, New Jersey. I'm going to be in Michigan. I'm going to be in Illinois. we have got a whole slate of big events coming up your way. So just go to com and just click on Get Tickets. And VIP options gives us I Can Meet With You Before and get a chance to find out what's on your mind, what you like and what you don't like. So uh, Red Banks, New Jersey, first up. And that is November 10th. So some tickets available still. Um, and uh, anything else, you'll see the book signings that we're still putting together. But they'll be all uh, across the Northeast And we'll try to fit that in between war coverage. Also, keep in mind, too, coming up next on this show is Josh Rogan. Josh Rogan's got a great perspective on China, and he's yelling from the rooftops about the threat. Finally, people are beginning to listen. He was paying attention when Russia showed up with China and talked about their uh, all-no-holds-barred relationship with each other and also says there is definitely a connection between Hamas and Russia. A meeting with Lavrov in Moscow. Keep it here.
2: Radio That makes you think this is the Brian Kilmeade show
7: We've not forgotten the mass graves, the bodies found bearing signs of torture, rape used as a weapon by the Russians and thousands and thousands of Ukrainian children forcibly taken into Russia, stolen from their parents. It's sick. Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy, completely annihilate it.
3: That is a little of the 15 minute speech that President Biden gave yesterday. Is he approaching this the right way? And is someone pulling the strings of Hamas besides Iran? Could it be Russia? And what about attention that should have been paid, perhaps, if there wasn't such a brutal attack October 7th? on what was happening with the Belt and Road program and the and the big summit they had over in China. With me right now, who guy who never takes his eye off the ball what's happening over there, Washington Post columnist Josh Rogan. Josh, you know, Vladimir Putin did call uh Benjamin Netanyahu who had de- evidently had a decent relationship and said, you know, he's going to keep his eye and try to keep things quiet in at the Gaza strip. What role do you think Russia has in all this besides benefiting from uh this ben- this attack on uh, on Israel?
15: Right. Well, I mean, he, Putin called Netanyahu like 10 days later, you know, and that wasn't an accident. And then he immediately took off for Beijing to spend a few days with his dear friend Xi Jinping while they celebrated what they call their new world order, which is uh, a world where autocracy and repression uh, reign and where uh, uh, might makes right and where the United States and the West no longer uh, have power and influence. And, you know it's kind of shocking actually to me because Putin and Netanyahu had a pretty good relationship and uh, Israel had stayed out of the business of supporting Ukraine because it wanted uh, Russia's acquiescence to strike Iranian targets in Syria. But Putin threw all that away. Now, that's one way that he sort of supported Hamas. The other way is that he did it diplomatically. Uh, They've been pushing resolutions, calling on Israel to not retaliate and uh, blaming the United States for the uh, crisis. And, Uh, supporting the Palestinian position. And then, of course, there's the money. All of the terrorist groups get their money from Iran, but it's laundered through Moscow and um, Moscow-based crypto exchanges. Then there's the weapons, and it's hard to know, but there are a lot of Russian, North Korean, and Iranian weapons in Hamas' hands, how did they get there? There are some reports that Wagner military guys help train Hamas. At least that's what the Ukrainians say. Uh, Then there's the propaganda. And I don't know about your TikTok feed, Brian, but my TikTok feed is full of Russian and Chinese propaganda about Hamas is right and the Israelis are wrong and it's all the United States fault and the Jews fault. And uh, that's a multi-billion. So in all of those ways, Russia, China, Iran, and Hamas are working together as they have been. And now they're just working together, including on uh, supporting Hamas in this war. And uh, that is the basic argument for why Biden is saying that we need to fund both Ukraine and Israel. I don't know if he, he articulated that very clearly in his speech last night. I'm not sure any minds were changed. But uh, anyway, that's the that basic argument I agree with, although I don't agree with how the Biden administration has necessarily gone
3: about selling the idea. There was reports that Hamas uh, terrorists were in Moscow meeting with Lavrov and that would show a link. They do benefit from it. You know Iran is part of this new axis of evil. Iran controls Hamas and Hezbollah. That could be enough to draw conclusions, and you would think on the surface that Russia would benefit from it because less eyes on uh, what they're doing, the carnage that they're doing and being victim of in Ukraine. And, by the way, the Ukrainians haven't slowed up because people aren't watching. In fact, they're still making some progress. This is a, a Russian offensive, but there's no doubt about it. The Russians being forced out of out of Crimea, their navy out of Crimea is huge, and they're making some progress in other places with these attackums blowing up. I think eight helicopters the other yeah. day. So it's not like we're no longer supporting the war. Uh, no, of, I you, mean, yeah, go
15: ahead. Yeah, uh, w- w- what do you know when you give the Ukrainians the weapons that they are begging for, that they say they need? It actually works. Imagine if Biden didn't give them those attackums a year ago. Why didn't they get them a year ago? Why? Why only now after? 10,000, 10,000 of Ukrainians have died, right? So Biden has been half pregnant on this Ukraine thing the whole time, which undermines his argument when he comes to Congress and tells the Republicans they should vote for another, what, 60, 70, 80 billion dollars is going to be in this bill that they're going to release next week. That's a tough sell on a good day if you're doing everything right. And when, you know, there are some Republican criticisms of the Ukraine aid that I don't agree with, like it's not in our interest. I don't agree with that. There are some that I do agree with, which is that the president hasn't done what you would really need to do to win the war. Uh, you got to go big or go home on this thing. And he hasn't explained it really to the American people as to why it's important, at least until last night. And it was really kind of hard to understand, frankly. Uh, so I get why there's a lot of opposition to these Ukraine. aid, But in the end, you know, the thing that would be Putin's wet dream his his birthday present the cherry on the icing would be if we stop uh if we pull the rug out from the ukrainians in the middle of the counter-offensive that would be the most horrible thing we could do to these ukrainians is just for no with no strategy or anything just just totally stop giving them money because they you know be like oh you're on your own and uh, I don't think that would be good for Ukraine. I don't think it would be good for Israel. I don't think it would be good for Taiwan. And I don't think it would be good for the United States.
3: It would be terrible for the country. Anybody who's thinking this thing through, like smart guys like J.D. Vance know better. I, do, I don't yeah. get it, uh, why he would be like that. And, I, you know, there's you know Jim Jordan saying the same thing. We've got to stop the Ukraine aid. I don't know where this stuff comes from. Well, since when do you just throw in the towel? You want to change tactics. You want an audit. You want to stop using our funds to pay pensions. I get that. You better find out why these, all these uh, oligarchs got, or these, ex, these secretaries, cabinet secretaries got fired. I, I'm all for that. But when you see the way they fight and how hard they're fighting and what they want to do, be part of the EU and NATO, and how wrong the Russians are, there's no nuance there. This was unprovoked action, not right. challenged until 550 days ago. So unless you're pro-Russia and China having a dominant place in this world and us looking as bad leaving Ukraine as we did leaving Afghanistan, you fund this thing, but intelligently. And that's what was came across last night. I also would like to see a harder edge to the three attacks that happened to our ships in three different locations, to our bases in Iraq and Syria and our ship off the coast of Yemen. To me, uh, Josh, you've got to answer hard to these, this stuff.
15: Well, well, right. Well, let's get to that. But let me just first respond to what you said about Russia. Listen, I think that a lot of Republicans uh, see the politics of this changing. And, and you know, when I talk to some Republicans who are even, like you said, the ones who know better, who have served, who know that, like, Russia's bad and Ukraine uh, needs to be defended, and that, you know, G- China's going to attack Taiwan if they think we're so weak that we won't even stand up for Ukraine. Uh, they know better but they they're looking at what they the republican polls and that's a a legitimate thing for them to look at but what i'm saying is that when it gets to the general election are you are the republicans really going to run against biden from the he's too strong on ukraine position is that really what's you know because the polling shows that most americans want to uh not lose <laughs> they want to win the help ukraine win the war and stop russia here and Understand that, like, actually the costs of helping Ukraine are much, much less than the costs if Ukraine loses and then Russia keeps going. But all of those things are sort of uh, 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 wrapped up in the overall fight inside of the – for the the speaker's race, as you know. So we're just going to have to wait to see how that plays out. Meanwhile, as you point out, Iranian proxies in Yemen, in Iraq, and in Syria – are attacking U.S. forces as we speak. And it's a lot worse, actually, than the Defense Department has admitted. And I'm telling you right now, Brian, from my reporting, I'm in touch with people on the ground in Syria and Iraq, and the attacks are ongoing. In other words, there were more yesterday, and there were some Tuesday and there were some Wednesday, and there were more than the, than the Pentagon has, has acknowledged. And what that means is that the Iranians are activating their proxies all over the region. And one U.S. contractor died the Pentagon – I don't know if you saw this. The Pentagon said, well, that was, that was the false alarm. That wasn't the attack. The alarms were off. Heart attack. A heart attack, right. But either way, it's part of this pattern of the Iranians attacking the Americans through these proxies. And, yeah, we, the, the only same thing to do is to nip that in the bud by killing those people who attacked our troops. And most of them are in Iraq and Syria, so it doesn't mean attacking Iran. It means basically attacking them in Iraq and Syria, maybe a couple in Yemen – uh, before they get the idea that it's okay to attack Americans because we got, what, 3- 3,500 troops in in Iraq and Syria. And, uh, you know, we got to protect them. That's job number one, I think. Uh,
3: but you know what bothers me? Maybe I got spoiled because Schwarzkopf was so convincing, and we had some really good spokespeople. But listen to General uh, Brigadier General Pat Ryder describing some of these attacks. Cut 21.
6: See small-scale attacks. Uh, are clearly concerning and dangerous, right? And we're going to, as I mentioned, we're going to do everything necessary to ensure that we're protecting our forces. Uh, and and if and when we choose to respond, we'll do so on th- a time of our choosing.
3: Okay, um, enough. I mean, we see but this wait, guy, he, and then every follow-up question after, he's like, well, I just said everything I'm going to say on that. Go ahead.
15: Yeah, you you didn't even play the next part, which is where he says, it's not clear that they're linked to what's going on in Israel. That's what he said. He's like, oh, maybe it's not had nothing to do with what's going on in Israel and Gaza. Like, excuse me? Does that pass the laugh test? What is this, like a a, a, a spate of attacks by Iranian proxies at the moment that the Iranian proxies are fighting Israel? I don't – it doesn't it's, – it's, it, it's, it would be funny if it wasn't so sad. Okay. Sure. And th- but remember, this is what the Pentagon did when the Iranians attacked the same exact base after Trump killed Soleimani. They lied about the damage because they didn't want it to get out of control because they don't want to get into a hot war with – uh uh with iran but it's not the job of the military people to lie to the american people to make us feel better it's the job to tell the truth so that the policymakers can make the decision so i think these uh these pentagon guys have be- got to become more transparent because this is going to get worse before it gets better
3: absolutely too because they were in the uniform and we expect a certain candor
15: right uh, we appreciate their service but we can't hide the fact that american troops are under attack in at least three countries
3: so josh, Ro- josh rogan our guest from the Washington Post, Josh. So do you believe that China could actually not only – among the countries that came to visit them uh, during the Belt and Road Summit was hungry, by the way. So do you think that China might take advantage of this and just make a quick move like they did in Hong Kong and maybe start taking shots at Taiwan and and measuring our response, especially with two of our aircraft carriers back in the Middle East?
15: I mean the, the the Chinese government will definitely take advantage as much as they can. I don't think they're going to attack anything. Uh, I don't think they're ready to attack Taiwan. I don't think that's their first option anyway. But yeah, um, in propaganda, in development, in economics, it's a distraction from their genocide, from their aggression. And they have been. They have been menacing Taiwan during this whole thing just to be jerks about it. You know what I mean? Just to be like, hey, Taiwan, you see what's happening over there? You could be next. That's the kind of capricious cruelty and and meanness that comes – out of the Chinese Communist Party every single day for the Taiwanese and a lot of these other countries. And so, yeah, they're going to they're going to I'm sure that they're seeking every opportunity, not just to advance their aggression, but to profit off of it. And God knows what else. And that's the point is that, you know, in the end, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, they're helping each other in lots of different ways. But guess what? They're on that team, right? We're on the other team. Guess what? Our team's actually the better team. We have a lot more allies, better allies, more money, better military, better economies, you know, if we could just get our act together and sort of and, and rise to this challenge, which we just can't seem to manage because of our own dysfunction and division. And that's kind of the problem.
3: It is as we as we search for a speaker. And I understand the vote is going to get underway. And if, please tell me anyone that you know that thinks it's going to be any different than the last vote may be worse for Jim Jordan. So here's Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg who has been on the money often and goes to Iraq as well, cut eight. You saw the attack going
11: on by Iranian proxies right now uh, in, in Iraq. We know they're behind it, and he's got to make a hard call on what he wants to do. Because if Hezbollah comes into this fight, then the next question is, okay, what are you going to do with Iran? How are you going to handle that? And normalizing relations is a huge mistake. It's a terrorist state. Thirteen days ago, in their parliament, they chanted, death to America, death to Israel. There are 32 dead Americans from Israel in Israel as a result of that attack. There's over a dozen missing. That's the big that's the big threat he's facing today.
3: And are you convinced he's got the team around him? Jake Sullivan, Secretary of State Blinken. Um, I don't really know much about the new chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, except for he's looking for black pilots, not the best pilots. So I'm wondering if you have any indication that you think that Joe Biden's up for this.
15: Well, listen, you know. The the first 12 days of this crisis are not a ringing endorsement for the competency of the biden administration foreign policy team you've had tony Blinken go from country to country to country basically getting insulted and and humiliated like uh, Mohammed bin salman the clown prince of saudi arabia made him wait for several hours in the middle of the crisis just to again just to show him who's boss then biden goes all the way to the region and the president of egypt and the king of jordan not to mention the head of the palestinian authority don't show up for the meeting Okay, there was a bombing. I get it. It was tense. But when the president of the United States comes over and the whole strategy is, oh, we're going to meet with our Arab allies, the ones that we give money to, and then they won't even show up for the meeting, that should tell you all you need to know about the the eff- effectiveness of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East right now. Now, it's great to stand by Israel. I think the president did the right thing by standing by Israel. But he's also supposed to have all of these relationships to all of these other Arab countries, and it all petered out to nothing. They can't even get the aid in. So, yeah, I think you, you, you have to, like, rate that as, like, a, a, a C or worse. Okay. Now, is that the problem because Jake Sullivan said two weeks before the crisis that – the Middle East was quiet and everything was kunky dory. Yeah, that's, yeah, he got that one wrong. Yeah, he did. <laughs> but uh, you know, it, I think basically this is the, the it's not the United States' fault, but it just goes to show how much our power and influence has diminished in the region.
3: And, and Josh spends considerable time there, uh, mostly in Japan, so you understand what goes on and how worried the neighbors are. Here's what heartens me: the Chinese have indicators on their economy, short term, long term, they're in trouble. They're in trouble because they have 3 million homes for 1.4 uh, billion, uh, 4 billion people. They're in trouble. Their real estate is falling apart. The young people are not working. Uh, the budget is not balancing. There's a lack of trust since the pandemic in their own government. And I think with the one-child policy, their future isn't exactly bright. Am I, am I over-optimistic about right. the bad future for China?
15: Listen, China is going to be the largest economy in the world sooner or later. It's going to have the most people in the world. It's going to be a huge role player for the rest of our lives. None of that's going to change. I also don't think the Chinese Communist Party is brittle. I think they have a firm control over their country and their people, and they – of course, they use genocide and every other atrocity and technological tool of of cruelty to to achieve that, but – what you're saying is true in the sense that we have this idea that, oh, these autocracies are so good because they can make decisions, because they promote the best people, because they can think long term because they don't have to deal with these pesky elections. And all of that is actually nonsense because these autocracies are inherently unstable because yes. they rest on a, a culture of, of deity to one man, and that man is usually – a a prick who's murdering people and then when he dies all bets are off
3: i don't see that in your column you don't use that word enough josh rogan the washington post thank you i should uh, yeah. you really should think about it if you had to pass your editor ryan kilmeade Show, back in a moment
2: news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show.
16: We remind them that the House has the power of the purse, that so we appropriate the money. Uh, so we're certainly going to take a look at what they have. We're going to provide the input, uh, but we do have the Appropriations Committee here in the House. Now, having said that, Sandra, we don't have a speaker in the House, and that's why I keep calling on my colleagues to we just stay here until we fill this vacancy. Every day we go without a speaker, uh, it sends a terrible message to the world and our adversaries uh, that we're dysfunctional, that we are not capable of governing in a democracy, and that's the case that they all of our adversaries
3: make. And that that is chairman of uh, foreign relations that is uh, Congressman Michael McCall, he's flabbergasted. He's just trying to get things done. He's at the nexus, sees the danger in Ukraine, sees the need for funding, sees understanding the rise of China, how we have to get tougher there, and then we know the challenge that happened October 7th with Israel. And can't believe that how many questions he gets when he travels about, what's going on with your government? What did Kevin McCarthy do wrong? I don't understand why you need a new speaker. I don't understand how you can function without one. The question is, uh, the answer to that is they can't. Jim Jordan called the press conference this morning at 8 o'clock to say, uh, basically, he's running again, and they're nominating him now. And, by the way, who's nominating him? The guy who should be speaker, Kevin McCarthy. It's crazy.
2: From the Fox News radio studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest-growing radio talk show, Brian Kilmeade.
3: All right. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade. So glad you're here. Thanks for being with us all week at a consequential week, domestically and overseas. Middle East peace has never seemed further away, and a a ground incursion could be just minutes away. We'll have to see if green light's already been given. This hour, I'm going to be joined by Shannon Bream, who asked me to buy some time. She wasn't quite ready. And General Phil Phil Breedlove, and General uh, Breedlove is a former NATO Supreme Allied Commander. Man, his perspective on what's going on, not, not only in Ukraine, but with Israel and what they have to do. And how they might have to take the gloves off and lose the PR campaign in the short term to win the war in the long term. Jim Jordan uh, is trying to become the next speaker again. The voting has started. Big three.
2: Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three.
4: Number three. Well, you all, you all said that we were going to lose between the first vote and the second vote. You all said we were going to lose 10 to 15 votes. We stayed the same. We picked up a few. We lost a few. I think the ones we lost can come back. So, uh, look, I just know that we need to get a speaker as soon as possible so we can get to work for the American people.
3: All right. That's Jim Jordan at eight o'clock this morning. Really said nothing except for I'm going to give it another try. No indication that anything's got to be different. So far, he's opened up with seven votes for one other already. One other already with 12 votes in. Oh, my goodness. Next.
2: Number two,
6: see small scale attacks. Uh, are clearly concerning and dangerous, right? And we're going to, as I mentioned, we're going to do everything necessary to ensure that we're protecting our forces. Uh, And and if and when we choose to respond, we'll do so at a time of our choosing.
3: Well, the attacks have not stopped. Three yesterday, Yemen, Iraq, and Syria, and we have not chose to hit back. That is not okay with me as an American. And Josh Rogan just told us the attacks are more fervent and more frequent than we've been told.
7: Number one. Hamas and Putin represent different threats. But they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy, completely annihilate it.
3: Okay, that was part of President Biden's speech last night. Fifteen minutes asking for Ukraine money, border money and Israeli money. President speaks out. He outlines uh, what's going on, the opportunity that we have and what has to take place. Shannon Bream watches it all, looks at it all and analyzes it all and decides ultimately what's going to be on her big network Sunday show, Fox News Sunday. Shannon, welcome back.
9: I mean, after I watch uh, Saturday Night, right? I see what you're doing, and then I'm like, okay, let's reconfigure the show,
3: right? And let's just want to be on point. Do you ever want to just toss to my different clips from One Nation on Saturday Night at nine o'clock?
9: Um, clearly you don't watch my show because that's the whole show. That's the whole show.
3: I do watch your show. I know you got that band, and I thought that was interesting. Meet the press. Do you think
9: it's tacky or do you think it's appropriate? No,
3: I, I think Meet the Press and Face the Nation will be right on your heels.
9: I mean, we've got snack bars, and mimosa bar, all of it. It's good.
3: <laughs> Fantastic. I'm not sure what we did. We just touched color bars on the network. Was that your idea?
9: Uh, it was not, but I see that Chad program has rescued us. We're back.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, put it this way. I'm looking at the vote take place. I've never seen a more Seinfeldian press conference oh than 8 o'clock this morning. Nothing happened, right? Should, I mean, we have any clips from that? Anything at all, Eric, from that? Right. He opened up by telling a story. I'm in Ohio. About the
9: Wright brothers.
3: And then we learned about About the the Wright brothers. And Uh it's it's a museum I now want to visit. And the message was, I'm still running for Speaker and I have no additional support. Let's listen.
4: Well, you all all said that we were going to lose between the first vote and the second vote. You all said we were going to lose 10 to 15 votes. We stayed the same. We picked up a few. We lost a few. I think the ones we lost can come back. So, uh, look, there's been multiple rounds of votes for Speaker before. Um, We all know that. I just know that we need to get a speaker as soon as possible so we can get to work for the American
3: people. <laughs> I'm saying to myself, how do I get that 15 minutes of my life back? We had to cut our show for 20 <laughs> minutes, and I thought at the end he was going to make this statement, talk about the Wright brothers, uh, ha- recommend that book by Bill McCullough, which is uh, – no, David McCullough. Excuse me. Bill McCullough is an old producer I had in sports. Uh, <laughs> Dave McCullough, who wrote a book about the Wright brothers, which talked about these brothers who taught us how to fly, and we ended up on the moon. I love the story. It was a, it was a great true story. But how does it help us get a speaker? We all need a speaker. Any indication, Shannon? That,
9: is he announcing that he's going to the moon? <laughs> is that not, part of not, the campaign uh, process for speaker? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. But you, you know, you mentioned the you, the Seinfeld vibe to it, and, and one of the yes. one of the you know DC sheets that comes out in the morning said it, this is turning sort of a fe- into a Festivus thing. You know, like where everybody has to come and. They want to um, air their grievances, and they want to take their shots, but then they don't want to resolve it. So it's sort of like, okay, you guys were mad at Kevin McCarthy, but like Congressman Waltz, former veteran, or veteran says, you know, you don't blow up one bridge without knowing where your next one is. And they didn't have a plan. So, you know, it's not a good look for the House GOP, but, man, they are dug in. There's, there's serious internal divisions that don't seem to be like they're healing up.
3: Right, now there's three already who voted for other. Who knows it's, if it's Lee Zeldin or Donald Trump. Uh, I'm not sure. There are three people, though, so the Brian Republicans Right. Brian Kilmeade? Right. Would I be able to do you, both?
9: You don't have to be a member. Well, you already have, like, ten jobs at Fox, so I think you'd have to give up at least one or two of those. Right. I'll let you guest host my radio out.
3: show until I'm better. Uh, right. so, so let's see. Three, there's three votes already. How weird was it that Kevin McCarthy did the endorsement? Kevin McCarthy's like, I should be—I could get the most votes— but right. you kick me out without a plan. You know what I hope from that comes out of the Shannon? These people that say ridiculous things where we're not going to fund anything because we're thirty-three trillion dollars in debt and they have no plan to cut anything or programs, they just are mad and they don't vote for stuff. The, hopefully the this is the end of the ridiculous, unplanned, emotional vote. That the personal selfish votes.
9: Well, but remember that group of 8 to 10 that put put you know McCarthy through 15 ballots, they felt like they had extracted promises from him about where spending levels were going to be set, about priorities, all of those kinds of things. So they say this is his fault because he didn't make good on that deal. Now, I've talked to people who were part of that deal who will say it was never my intention. If he didn't make the best effort, that's one thing. I do think he made the best effort, so I'm not going to vote him out. I mean, there were people who said that. Listen, I give him credit for working the hand he was dealt, did the best that he could. Yes, I was one who was for, you know, making one person able to call this motion to vacate. But when it came down to it, they didn't vote against him. And they were part of that holdout group. But they said, you know, you can't punish him for, you know, circumstances beyond his control. I think he did the best he could. Right. But clearly eight of them didn't think so.
3: Right. I think he can only lose one more or else he's done this time. Right.
9: So now we're wasting another, you know, how many hours doing, doing this thing? Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, Jim Jordan, he is scrappy. He is a fighter. But at what point does he say, uncle? I don't know.
3: For a minute, he endorsed the idea of having a temporary speaker be speaker till January, and they quickly Mm -hmm. reversed that. So I want to talk about yesterday's speech. Here's President. Here's President Biden. Cut three.
7: More than 1,300 people slaughtered in Israel, including at least 32 American citizens. Scores of innocents. From infants to the elderly grandparents, Israelis, Americans taken hostage. As I told the families of Americans being held captive by Hamas, we're pursuing every avenue to bring their loved ones home. As president, there is no higher priority for me than the safety of Americans held hostage.
3: So he wants uh, he wants money for Afghan. He wants money for. Fourteen billion for military and security assistance to Israel. Ten billion for humanitarian assistance for both conflicts. Fourteen billion for U.S. border security. Seven billion uh, for aid to Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific region. You didn't get into Taiwan over the border. And as Tom Cotton told us this morning, he's like, "Don't I'm not going to give money just to the border. It's going to end up uh, paying for the Roosevelt Hotel. We want to give money <laughs> for border enforcement. And, mm-hmm. and you know, and wh- where is the money going to Ukraine? I don't want to pay for pensions." so that's where the rubber hits the road and plus we don't have a house.
9: There yes, you outline several legitimate problems that we have. Um I was looking at this, you know, this call that uh, went on this morning with the OMB director Shalonda Young and um national security advisor Jake Sullivan because I'm looking through this because I know that they were asked about border stuff. And um, they said it will be 1,300, additional 1,300 border patrol agents, 375 immigration judge teams, Teams, I don't know what that means versus judge, um, and 600 asylum officers. Now, all of that stuff is actually really practical if that's what happens, because these immigration courts where you know people are given a, a court date in 2075 to come back with a pinky promise, I mean, that doesn't inspire a lot of confidence for people. But uh, if this is really going to be 1,300 new Border Patrol agents who were asking to do impossible things and hundreds of judges and enforcement officers, maybe that makes a dent. I don't know.
3: It does. But what people are upset about, and I'm not, I'm all for Ukraine aid it, given to the right way. For example, Shannon, this must drive you crazy. You attack them. So we're not going to do that. Why? Because we don't want any of these rockets to end up in Russia and end up in a global war. Okay. We don't want a nuclear war. Okay. Well, you, they gave them attack em, but only gave them 20. So the, right away they blow up a whole bunch of helicopters, they start uh, like going into Crimea. This is exactly what they're gonna do. And that they now they need more. And then they didn't want HIMARS, they got HIMARS, they didn't want Patriots, they got Patriots, now they got cluster bombs. Uh, over and over again, it's what they ask for. They don't get. Eventually, they're going to get. You know what's going to happen in January? They're getting F-15s. You know what happened over the summer? They promised to train. You know what's happening now? They're actually training Ukrainian pilots. You mm-hmm. know what's going to happen? We're going to have Ukrainian pilots in F-15s. And then they going to you know what they're going to do. Be unbelievably effective. And that's what drives everyone crazy. People who right, see the, the worthiness saying- in the fight, the slow walking of the weapons.
9: Right. Like, why didn't we give them this stuff a year and a half ago or a year ago? Because if you know you're eventually going to do it, you got to you know, get it to them when there's the best advantage. But a couple of things I hear about on the Hill. First of all, a lot of people really angry that Ukraine and Israel are tied together. They feel like... um no, make this administration come and make the argument for things separately. Why would the GOP give them coverage by saying like, yep, yeah, we're going to vote for this package deal? Because obviously everybody wants the, the with the exception of like two people on Capitol Hill, three maybe, they want the aid to go to Israel. But um, the Republicans are saying like, don't make us do the heavy lifting on Ukraine. Make the president come and explain what is victory? How does this end? How much more money? This is, these are taxpayer dollars. You know, come do that. And also there's a frustration that they can't seem to get additional um, tracking requirements they want you remember the the uh, the Inspector general after the fact in Afghanistan, where did all the money go? What happened? Where did the weapons end up? All of that stuff. People want that on the front end for Ukraine, and it's been almost impossible to get it past committees and get it anywhere on the hill for an amendment or anything else. But people say, why is that does this is this administration worried that if there's really in depth tracking? We're going to find out it's not always going to the right place, and then they're going to lose even more support for passing more money um for it or You know, I don't I don't know what the opposition is to having more eyes and ears on tracking exactly where it's going.
3: Here is with uh, J.D. Vance, to your point, uh, cut 11.
0: America doesn't need client states. We need real allies. And if the Europeans aren't going to step up and actually carry their fair share, they're not real allies. They're basically depending on our generosity. And we can't support the weapons necessary to fight a two or, God forbid, a three front conflict if China invades Taiwan. And given that reality, why is Joe Biden going on national television and selling people on a Ukrainian escalation when Joe Biden is talking about the terrible tragedy in Israel? Whatever your view, Sean, on on Ukraine, yeah. it is a separate country and a separate problem. I think what the president did is completely disgraceful. If he wants to sell the American people on $60 billion more to Ukraine, he shouldn't use dead Israeli children to do it. It was disgusting.
3: So that, you know, he's been pretty firm against that. I just don't see any clear-thinking person who thinks it's okay for Russia to beat Ukraine and it's not going to affect us. But he's upset about the blending of two. That's to your point, Shannon, right?
9: Yeah. I mean, he definitely is. And there are others as well. You've heard from Rick Scott and Josh Hawley. There are a number of GOP senators. Like, listen, they don't think they have the numbers to put a stop to any of this. But they think it's only fair to the American people that there be separ- separate arguments. They don't think these are exact parallels. I mean, there are different interests in all these different places, including Taiwan as well, and the border. I mean, those are four different very important flashpoints. And like you said, you know, there are people say, like, okay, not just to the border. What is it going to be? Explain it to me. Explain it to the American people. Um, Um, But, you know, a lot of these guys have said if you're giving political cover to voting for things by saying we got to do this for Israel, um, it feels like a shortcut to them that feels very politicized. Uh,
3: By the way, it looks like Jim Jordan has already lost nine votes.
9: Yeah, I think so. Mm.
3: Okay, It's going well. Uh, Fantastic. Oh, Oh my god. And again,
9: I mean, the Scalise votes. So, you know, at this point, I mean, obviously, those are protest votes. Zeldin. Yeah.
3: So Um, I want to give you some heart. Now, the one thing I found, the most disturbing thing to emerge uh, after the carnage on October 7th, obviously the details of that are beyond human comprehension. But what, I was, what has cropped up as I walk through Times Square and see these rallies for Hamas and the Palestinians, then find out it's at Columbia, NYU, and the University of Pennsylvania, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, see all these anti-Israeli moves, despite them being the victims here. Now I want to give you some positive messaging. And it came from an assistant Columbia Business School professor who stood up literally and gave an impromptu press conference about his view about Columbia, saying I will never send my kids here, cut 24.
12: And I want you to know, we cannot protect your children from pro-terror student organizations because the president of Columbia University will not speak out against pro-terror student organizations. They were celebrating the rape of teenage girls in a music festival. In the name of resistance.
3: And he went on. Listen.
12: If my amazing two-year-old daughter was now 18 years old, I would never, never send her to Colombia. I know that she will not be protected there.
3: Shai Dividai, who said that, is an assistant Columbia Business School professor. I'm not sure how secure his job is when you call out the president, but man, I salute his words and I understand exactly how he feels.
9: Yeah, I mean, the passion, um, when you think about real people, I mean, that's what makes the difference when you think about... War. I mean, it is a very ugly, brutal, horrible thing. And I think we were all shocked when this started on October 7th to see the images we saw, to hear the stories. But this is just days old. This is still so fresh. There are hostages still missing. There are lives hanging in the balance. And yes, that means civilians on both sides of this are caught in it. And it's a disaster. But to be here stateside, um, you know, we had uh, Ben Sass, former senator, now University of Florida president, on with us, um, you know, last Sunday talking about this, saying, I will absolutely protect protect. protect free speech, but I also will make sure that every Jewish student in our organization feels completely protected and never at risk. I mean, clearly this professor does not feel his own school has been able to speak with that kind of moral clarity.
3: Shannon Bream, you always speak with clarity. Fox News Sunday will have...
9: We're going to have Senator Mitch McConnell uh, in the middle of all these funding fights now that the White House is asking for $105 billion more in aid. We'll have Newt Gingrich to talk with us. the Does he have any advice for the House getting it together? <laughs> and we'll break down all of the different hotspots live with Jack Keane too, right. the, general, then, the and and general, the good general.
3: And then you do a whole segment on how great uh, – f- and that's where you have to open the segment. It'll be in the prompter – how great One Nation was Saturday at 9.
9: Well, we lead with that every Sunday. Thank you very much. Okay,
3: see you Saturday. Bye, Shannon. Uh, we come back. Your calls is 408 7669 Then General Philip Breedlove. Uh, Jordan is lost again.
2: Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. <laughs> the fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade.
4: We have said repeatedly for the last two weeks that we are ready, willing, and able to find a bipartisan path forward, to enter into a partnership with our Republican colleagues, to reopen the House, to get the business of the American people done, to solve problems for hard-working American taxpayers. We just need some traditional Republicans to join us. Instead of rejecting bipartisanship, they need to stop embracing extremism. What?
3: And Jim Jordan has just lost the third round of voting. Uh, Jeffries sits there. That was him before the voting actually started. So he lost his third round. Jim Jordan yesterday sat down with all 20, all 20 of the, his detractors They voted no and convinced none of them. In fact, John Rutherford of Jacksonville said, we try to convince him to drop out. Instead of them whipping us to vote for him, we tried to tell him, we want you to drop out and we want to vote for somebody else. Some of them want schoolies. Some of them, they all wanted McCarthy. Now they're voting for Zeldin. He's going to miss 20 votes, but there's no one with 217. Nobody. I don't know how this ends. Do you?
2: The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade.
11: Unlike the Iraq wars that we fought, you're going to see a different type of speed executed by the IDF, where it's not a question of necessarily miles per hour. It's a question of how many of the forces can they get inside of Gaza in the shortest amount of time. They control two land borders, and they can also come in via the sea. So I see them going to come in from all the sides, and also, if they can, uh, land uh, some air forces inside and quickly connect with each other Gaza is small. They'll be able to do it so that what they can do is they can isolate pockets of where they believe Hamas is and slowly close in, prevent them from escaping and essentially no. force them to either surrender or die.
3: So that is uh, retired Navy Captain Armin uh, Kurdian. Uh, he was on Fox News at night last night, just a few hours ago. Uh, just quick, if you were just tuning in, uh, round three for Jim Jordan went a lot like the first two rounds. He has failed. He has already missed 19. So he will not be speaker yet or ever. Uh, let's go back to the other thing. There's a war happening and there could be a surge at any moment. It looks like they are ready for the ground offensive We're to believe the reports. But let's go to a guy that knows all about it. General Philip Reedlove, former NATO Supreme Allied Commander. His insight's invaluable. And we really need you now. Uh, General, so far, do you think that the Israelis had a specific uh, objective for their aerial campaign? And do you think they've achieved it?
5: Well, I'm not sure, Brian. Oh, first of all, thanks for having me on your show again. I'm not sure that they've totally achieved it, but they are executing uh, against intelligence that they have. You know, and I know, and everybody's talked about how Hamas hides their military next to and behind Uh, you know, shields like schools and hospitals and things. So Israel's had to be very surgical so far in how they they get about this. And they've had some good, very good results, but there's more to be done. The bottom line is I think that they are uh, uh, working through a plan that essentially, quote-unquote, opens the door to what they now need to do on the ground. And I I believe uh, that for several days they've probably been able to go in. They're probably still looking for those last snippets of intelligence about hostages and how best to isolate and retrieve them.
3: Uh, Yeah, I mean, we'll have to see. What about this element of surprise, underwater drones and things to that nature? They planned in such detail for the uh, October seventh insidious attack, and surprised so many with their intelligence. With how they were able to get so many and kill so many, and they lost a lot too. I'm wondering if they have. They and they knew this was going to happen. If you're a general leading this charge, what would you be most concerned about?
5: Well, I think the general that's going to lead this is is pretty confident in his ability. To militarily accomplish what he needs to accomplish. What we all know and understand and have been talking about for the few, last few days is Hamas knows they can't win militarily. They can probably inflict some damage and it's going to be painful for Israel as well but what hamas is about and i think what israel has to respect the most is the is the pr campaign the public affairs picture of what they're doing from the get go when hamas tries to blame one of their errant rockets on hitting this hospital on israel you can see that they are using the world stage to try to defeat Israel before they come across the line in a public affairs sense. And frankly, Brian, we saw some of the most quote-unquote respectable uh, news outlets in our country falling for it, hook, line, and sinker. Um, And you're going to see more and more of that when the actual ground Mm. assault starts.
3: It's such idiocy. You have a one group targeting civilians, targeting seniors, targeting children, butchering them, stealing them, and the others. If there's something like that happens, it's not the objective. It is a it is a uh, it is a casualty. It's incidental conduct. How do people not see that double standard? Michael Waltz, who knows all about fighting battles, Green Beret, now in the House, said this about the message we're getting from the West and from our president. Cut seventeen.
15: And my other question is uh, for President Biden. He just did it again in his speech. Why does he keep raising human <clears throat> rights in the same breath as Israel? Did he say that about Ukraine? No. Did he say that about any other ally? No. Why does he keep saying that about Israel? And the only thing I could think of is pandering to uh, the progressive anti-Semitic left. Uh, but it, it, otherwise, it makes no sense. And now you have Americans all over the world in danger. We have embassies. They're talking about evacuating. You have riots in the streets. Uh, this is disgraceful. It should be called out. There should be firings and accountability. And yet we have a shoulder shrug, even from members of Congress. Uh, it, it's it's truly unacceptable. Does he
5: have a point? Well, I, I have to agree with him. Um, the, you know, the bottom line here is People are very, very quick to forget the atrocities of Hamas on the ground in their attack. And and then we begin to focus on all of the things that people want to play out in the foreground so that they can try to affect uh, the offensive that's about to come. Um, I, I, you know, it's for me when I heard that quote unquote Uh, Israel had bombed this hospital. Uh, It's just ludicrous to me that that anyone would believe Israel would do that because they know that world opinion is going to be against them the very first thing that happens. And why would they go out there and create that opportunity? You know, it's just, it's really, um, it's really kind of crazy. But the bottom line, Mm -hmm. once again, some very respectable American uh, news programs and outlets uh, took it, took one. New York Times and questions.
3: the AP and CNN. Yeah. And, 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 so and people these are- die. People die because of it. And, and then unrest everywhere and, and, and meetings with uh, our president get canceled. And I just want to uh, bring you to this point. The lieutenant colonel told me today from the IDF said that they have their headquarters underneath the hospital. Hamas purposely has their headquarters underneath the hospital. So you're going to have to, you know what it's like, you fight wars. They're going to have to go in two tunnels to get to the headquarters in order to preserve the hospital that Hamas couldn't care less about.
5: Well, and that's the point. You you just made a very important point. Uh, People keep equating Hamas to Palestinians. Uh, They are very different. Hamas could care less about rank-and-file Palestinians. They are tools to be used in this coming battle. That's what Palestinians are for Hamas. And Hamas, a win for them is to get such uh, a view or a feeling of atrocity by Israel that Israel is separated from those that support her uh, in the long run, and that that's about the most that they can expect from this coming battle, and and we just have to steel ourselves to understand that everything that comes out of Hamas should be taken with mm-hmm. a grain of salt immediately, and then uh, you know examined to see if it actually holds water.
3: I was talking to the former NATO Supreme Allied Commander General Philip Breedlove. Right way to go forward. So let's look at the big picture. That's what you're best at. You look at the Russians moving to Ukraine. They have their hands full. They're being pushed back. They've already been forced out of 50 percent, if not more, of the land that they initially took. And Crimea, they were forced to evacuate their whole navy. I hope there's more progress to be made, especially with the attackums we finally gave. But China, Russia, Hamas. Brian, yes. could,
5: could I inter- inter- uh, intercept there just for a second? because I I wanna make sure that our listeners understand about the ATACMs we gave them. It's one more example of this creeping incrementalism of our government. We gave them some ATACMs and they are very capable at what they do. But these are the least range and least capable ATACMs for striking truly hard targets. They they are good at what they do. You know, they use them against an airfield and knocked out some helicopters and things. But the ATACMs that, uh, that Ukraine still needs are the unitary warhead high-explosive ATACMs. They fly farther, and they can bust up hardened targets, ports, ports facilities, ships, the Kerch Strait Bridge, all of those targets. Are the kind of targets that require the high explosive unitary warhead version that flies longer. We have not given them that weapon. We have given them the shortest range weapon with cluster munitions, which will not work against things hardened targets like the Kirk Strait Bridge and others. So I'm sorry for interrupting. No, no, no problem. Thought, but but our government is sort of getting a little bit of a pass because. Yes, we have given uh, Ukraine ATACMs. And yes, Ukraine, knowing the limitations on these shorter-range, older ATACMs, have used them to great effect against targets that they work against. But they, we have not given them the kind of ATACMs that can truly hold the entire peninsula um, uh at risk, which is what we've got to do. When we start talking about Crimea, I use the three P's. We need to bring them under persistent, pervasive, precise attack. Persistent meaning enough to keep it up. Pervasive meaning hitting all of the military targets and precise meaning with Mm -hmm. long-range attack. if you do that, Russia will have to leave Crimea. And that's the deciding point here that is a and general critical does it, point
3: general of, i've of, never heard a dissemination between the type of attackums i am not a military guy but read as much as possible talk to as many people so that is a dissemination not been made number number two the fact that they even gave them after denying it for 530 days is insane uh do they go further than do the these attackums go further than high mars
5: yes they do and they are very capable so we you know we have to We have to give credit where credit's due. We have broken the policy threshold on ATACMS. But like we have done with so many other things in this war, we've given them a lesser capable um, version of the ATACMS, less range, and a very different kind of warhead. If we're going to hold the entire peninsula of Crimea at risk for hard targets, military targets, we also need to give them the high-explosive unitary warhead mm-hmm. uh, ATACMS that flies further, et cetera, et cetera, and is effective against things like the Kerch Strait Bridge. Uh, and, um, and that's the
3: bridge that connects Crimea to the mainland, and it's the main, main artery that's, that supplies the, uh, the battlefield for the Russians?
5: That supplies Crimea, yes, and any attacks from Crimea to the north. All of that supply, most of it would go across that. So, so,
3: General, you would never sign off on a policy that does incremental supply. You would never sign off on a policy if someone said you, General, you have to win this, that says we're not going to give you F-15s. We'll give them to you. We're not going to give you high Mars. We're not going to give you Patriots. We'll give them to you. We'll give them to you. We're not going to give you cluster bombs. We're going to give them to you. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, this is unbelievable. They Little by little, they get everything they want, but if they got them when they had them, this thing would be over by now, perhaps.
5: Well, I didn't coin the phrase, but I have adopted it, and that is people are describing what we have done as creeping incrementalism. And what it appears to me is that we are, we're very concerned that Mr. Putin is going to um, accelerate the war or use nukes, all the things, the buzzwords that are out there. And so we do things in very slow, methodical, incremental ways. And what happens is that prolongs the results.
3: Incredible. So uh, when you saw China meeting with Russia and talking about the Belt and Road program, final thought – uh, and you know that North Korea is supplying weapons to Hamas and now to Russia. Have you seen basically the new Axis powers?
5: Well, I think uh, it's been described again, not my words, but I like them, that Putin is trying to bring together all those people who would profit by diminishing U.S. power or Western power around the world. And they are reaching in there saying this is the time. Look, we've got them busy in Ukraine. They're now busy in Israel. Now we've got all these other little hot pockets popping around, North Korea firing off the kind of missiles that gets everybody excited. And I think that what we see is, is a little bit less about hard military power, but a whole lot more about trying to bring together those people who are like-minded in opposing the West and specifically the United States.
3: So, General, what's going to take to replenish our, our arsenal? We don't have many attackums. We don't have enough artillery. we got to start building ships quicker. We have $800 billion, maybe more coming, but we don't have the, don't have the industrial foundation. There's too few weapons manufacturers out there, uh, contractors out there to build this stuff. When are we going to change our approach?
5: Well, it's important, and you really hit it right there at the end of what we have to do. Uh, over the years, since we started the peace dividend at the fall of the wall, we have put – and and some of these are deserved because some people took advantage and, and flat uh, uh, did some things wrong. But we've put in so many rules and regulations now that that control – industry in the way it produces. And so you don't find the big prime contractors out there creating excess capability because they would get punished by the rules and regulations for using uh, money to create ca- extra capacity. And now what we actually do need is for industry to be able to rapidly expand mm-hmm. and have extra capacity. So we're going to have to relook at some of our laws and some of our regulations. We're going to have to rethink how we incentivize industry to be able to rapidly speed up their capability. And these are all thoughtful things that have to happen. And oh, by the way, we need a Congress that's functioning to make it happen.
3: That would be a nice plus. General Philip Breedlove, thanks so much. Our audience thanks you too at a time in which we could be looking at a massive war. Former NATO Supreme Allied Commander General Breedlove, thank you. Thank you, Brian. Back in a moment.
2: You're with Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade.
16: Well, I don't have a crystal ball. I can tell you, on the second round, he lost support. Okay. I do hear uh, that he may lose more support on the third round. But I-
3: Yes, Michael McCall, you're a little like Gene Dixon, a little like Nostradamus, because as a Republican, you want a speaker. As a guy that's worried about world affairs, you need one. As a guy that wants to appropriate money to Ukraine, the border, And Israel, you're going to need it, and you don't have it because Jim Jordan went from 200 votes to 199 votes to 194 votes. I appreciate that he doesn't want to quit, but I think he's got to quit. I have no idea where they go from here, and I'm not sure if the Republicans are going to stick around and, and try to hammer this out. But right now, despite Kevin McCarthy endorsing him and saying, please vote for him, he lost a lot of votes, two for McCarthy, eight for Scullies, four for Zeldin. And 11 for just random people. Somebody's voting for Trump, I think, too. On One Nation, Saturday night, join me, Dennis Prager, Oliver North. Uh, We're going to go with the IDF uh, expert there, the spokesperson, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Konkrakis, and the son of a Hamas founder who has now found Christianity and America to tell us what we're up against as Israel goes to take on that terror organization. And a celebrity bodyguard that goes back to the IDF and
10: leaves uh, Taylor Swift behind.